everybody. It, uh, we have a nice weekend in front of us. But we have a couple of really interesting segments uh, that we're going to uh, be listening to immediately. And we're going to start with you, Jeff Napolitano. You've got some good work to yes. talk to us about. Yes. So um, uh, there's a few things. The first thing I just want to point out, uh, which is on the front page of the Greenfield Recorder, is the uh, uh, tomorrow's Poor People's Campaign rally in Washington, D.C. Uh, and if you're looking at the Greenfield Recorder, uh, there's also going to be a local rally in Greenfield at the Greenfield Common tomorrow from 11 o'clock to noon uh, to, to be in solidarity. I know that uh, one of the premier activists of Western Massachusetts, Pocky Wheeland, is either on her way or in D.C. at this moment. And so it's going to be a big crowd. I, I hope the networks cover this, but um, but we'll see. Um, C-SPAN certainly will. This yeah. is Dan. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's a little comfort, but fair enough. Um, we'll get to C-SPAN in a second because uh, there was some interesting January 6th stuff on C-SPAN yesterday. Um, but in a, a, after we rant a little bit, um, I'm going to get to an interview that I did with Kate Palberg-Quam, who is the executive director of the Community Asylum Seekers Project in Brattleboro, Vermont. Um, so... Uh, I had a very good conversation with her. Um, we're going to get to that in a second. But uh, I, I realized as I'm yelling at the television yesterday that like I have a radio show that I go on to uh, every once in a while, and I can I can actually not just have to rant at my TV. Yell at my I got TV. a platform. Yeah. All right. So um, so I'm, I'm going to keep the profanities inside. But please do. Thank but, you. I mean, the thing is, it's so abundantly clear um, that. Uh, I don't know if it's you. I mean, the lawyer is here, so you can tell me if it's, it seems like there was treason uh, involved uh, on the part of the former president and lots of his associates. Certainly there were laws broken. Certainly there was, you know, riots, uh, a riot on the Capitol that was encouraged. I mean, I keep thinking about like, what if Lo uh, Louis Farrakhan had, had assembled, you know, a few hundred uh, angry black men and sent them raging into the Capitol. Like, would we be talking about and debating about this? They would have been indicted. I mean, this is this is ridiculousness. Um, and you know, the, the the there's a debate in the January sixth committee about like whether to refer charges or whether they can refer charges and blah 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 blah. And you know, why is this taking so long? Uh, why? I understand the need to inform the public of what's going on. I understand the need uh, to let people know how disastrous and how evil and criminal and all the things that happened were. I mean, it was, it's the, the picture that's being painted is clearly that they wanted to essentially topple the existing U S government. And there was an insurrection. Attempt. Yeah, there was a, yeah. Which, you know, a uh, hundred or 150 years ago, we dealt with this in a different way. Um, it was a little bit less, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. What, what would you, what do you think, Dan? Uh, you're talking about 1876. Is that what you were referring to? Or? I was talking about the the Civil War. Oh, the Civil War. Yeah. Oh, when they okay. were engaged in a great civil war, yeah. testing yes. whether that uh, nation or that. any yeah. nation can long endure. Yeah. Uh, my feelings about it are, well, in defense of Biden, if I may make one, it is going to take a long time for them to process all of the criminal charges because there were so many on that. You mean Garland? Subject. Garland, yes. But I'm sorry, the Biden administration. Yes, the Justice Department specifically. They are going to have to go through so many different cases. They've filed, what, 800 plus charges. They now look like they're moving on up to higher level officials 
think there were some members of the Proud Boys that they're now specifically looking at, charging them with uh, seditionist conspiracy, I think is the term they used, or at least I've read in the media. And I'm, I'm just shocked that they haven't yet begun to charge higher level officials than that. It's like you're working your way up. And now you're reaching individuals that were working in the White House, knowing what they were doing was illegal, and yet you haven't charged them. It's okay, but there must be a team in the FBI who's working on this, right, Buzz? I mean, I mean, they were now going on two full years. You would think, but, but Jeff, I want to get back to where yeah. Jeff started us here, which is, are, are you frustrated that nobody has been charged yet? Is that what your frustration? Yeah, yeah, and there doesn't seem to be uh, an. There doesn't seem to be even the contemplation from the Justice Department that they're going to charge anybody with anything. Well, clearly, the Justice Department is the Attorney General. Right, Merrick, Merrick Garland. Under him is the charging committee. Sure. So he's, he's got a committee of various department heads, Yeah. Uh, various committees that make decisions about, is this an SEC violation such that we should, you know, indict, uh, is it, you know, that, call a grand jury. Okay. But what is your theory as to why Merrick Garland has not? These people's clearly acted as if they were above the law. Nobody's above yeah. the law is what we say. So what's your theory about what's taking so long? Uh, I, I, I have no idea. I mean, but, but I have to say that if, if we go very much further, particularly if we go into the midterms without anybody held accountable for something that happened a year and a half ago, you would think this would be like a real big priority. A year and a half ago, then this is going to be lost. I mean, this is ridiculous. This is this is his job. Like, I understand the, the, the desire to put this on television and inform everybody in the United States about what's going on and what happened on January 6th. But as far as I'm concerned, this, they're, they're preaching to an audience of one, which is Merrick Garland. Like, if the attorney general does not help uh, address and hold people responsible for attempting to overthrow the United States government, why do we have an attorney general? And if he doesn't do anything, isn't he a complicit by enabling this behavior? Dan? And I would answer your question, Buzz, about why he hasn't prosecuted is my worry is he's worried about politicizing the judiciary. And either that that means he's worried that the evidence isn't strong enough for a conviction, because I can't understand if he has the evidence strong enough to get a conviction, why he wouldn't file charges unless he's worried about some political perception that they're politicizing the judiciary. That, that must be the answer. That must be, somebody must be sitting there as, I have all this evidence. Can we prove this beyond a reasonable doubt? No, and don't charge him, because if you do, uh, it will look like you're politicizing because the case is in a slam dunk. It must be. I, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to read into people's minds, but that, that must be what I think. I, okay. I remember Sorry. being so shocked as I watched attentively. I took notes during the impeachment one hearings. Now, granted, there weren't witnesses, and you know it was. Once it got to the Senate, it was so curtailed. But forty-one percent of Americans are said to have not been convinced that what he did was impeachable. Forty-one okay. percent of this country. So Merrick Garland might be thinking about this forty-one percent. If he is, shame on you, Merrick. You know, I just I remember Merrick Garland from the Guantanamo cases where he didn't show any spine in in even his assignments. He always assigned two Republicans and one Democrat for every one of our cases. It was so frustrating. Mm -hmm. All right. So we're, we're running a little bit behind now that we've ranted a little bit. But I'm going to 
go to the interview that I did with Kate Perlberg Quam. She is the. What are we going to do about the blood that's dripping out of your fangs? Well, we're going to address it at a different time. Okay. We're definitely going to. I mean, in, in two weeks, I'm going to be back here in two weeks. Okay. And if if somebody hasn't been charged with, if Jenny Thomas and Clarence Thomas haven't been charged after what's, happened, we're going to we're going to revisit this. All right. Okay. So um, <laughs> I'm promises, going. Yeah. Promises. Um, okay. So. I talked with Kate Palberg Quam. She's the executive director of the Community Asylum Seekers Project. Does great work. This is my interview with her. So, um, when and how did um, your organization come into existence? Yeah, we are a small nonprofit. We're growing. Um, you know, the demand is growing by leaps and bounds, and we're trying to meet it. So, we were founded in 2016. Um, by my predecessor in this position, a guy named Steve Crofter, who lives in Bellows Falls, New York. And Steve is a guy who um, traveled to the U.S.-Mexico border as a volunteer to work in a migrant shelter for a few days and was very moved by the experience and discovered that many people who come across the border have a claim to asylum, meaning that they are fleeing political persecution in their country of origin based on membership in a particular social group. And that those folks are almost always detained at the southern border, sometimes for months and months and months at a time, despite, of course, having you know committed no crime. And he, when he discovered that ordinary citizens can serve as sponsors for asylum seekers, meaning they provide housing and some financial support, that those folks can be released from detention, he came back to Vermont and said, okay, you know, Trump was just elected. This is something we can do in our community. We can do this. We don't need a government official to have good immigration policy for us to be able to step up. So that's what he did. And it started with a group of volunteers around a kitchen table. And now six years later, we have a staff of three. We have a network of two or 300 volunteers, and we have served directly some 25 asylum seekers. Uh, we also coordinate, a, we help to coordinate a group around the state of six to eight other similar organizations. And between all of us, we've sponsored and supported about 100 asylum seekers in those six years. What does your day-to-day work entail? Well, you know, we're a small staff. Um, it's three of us on our staff. And so it mostly entails everything <laughs> that you can think of and probably some things you can't think of to support um, an asylum seeker. So I guess I'll give a little snapshot, which is that last week, week before last, we welcomed a new family to Brattleboro. And this is a family of asylum seekers from Haiti, a mom, a dad, and two small children. And they had crossed the border during the instances of border patrol abuses in which uh, there was essentially a, a makeshift camp of Haitian asylum seekers staying under the Del Rio Bridge in Texas. And the border patrol was caught on camera chasing folks on horseback and whipping them with the reins of their horses. And the only reason this made it to the news, it was because it was on camera, you know, and was so reminiscent of, you know, slave patrols um, that it made it made folks really uncomfortable as it should have done. And so we we just welcomed this family. And so in the day to day after that happens, we are lining up volunteers who are able to provide free or low cost housing, sometimes renting apartments from landlords, getting documents in order, finding pro bono or low paid lawyers who take these cases, getting folks set up with oftentimes the first medical appointments they've had in many years you know, getting kids into pediatricians, getting parents eventually into language learning classes and job training. So that's kind of our direct service. We also have a network of a couple of hundred volunteers that we try to support and train. So we offer, you know, cultural competency training, anti-racism training, training in the context behind asylum and U.S. foreign policy. And then getting the whole thing funded is, you know, part of my job as well. 
You're listening to the Good Work segment on Afternoon Buzz here on WHMP. My name is Jeff Napolitano, and I was speaking with Kate Paulberg Quam from the Community Asylum Seekers Project. We were speaking about her work resettling asylum seekers in southern Vermont. So I'm just wondering what the what that actual process looks like. You get a call from somebody at the border. How do you facilitate their journey to Vermont and their resettlement? In many, many different ways. Uh, it's all sort of catch as catch can. There's no, you know, everybody comes in a different way. So there's no, there's no decided um, route. If, if somebody is in detention and we're working to get them released, then it's a little more straightforward. We have to work with ICE. Um, there is an organization, a great organization called Miles for Migrants that collects people's donated frequent flyer miles and then pays for flights for folks to get out of detention and fly to wherever in the country they're going. So we usually are able to get folks flights paid for through that service, you know, and essentially we find housing, um, give them the address that they're going to be going to. They can give that address to ICE and then we find them, you know, find them an attorney. We also have supported a number of people who have come here through other sort of more circuitous routes. One asylum seeker that we work with was trying to cross the border into Canada and didn't realize that it had just been closed at the beginning of the pandemic. So she was turned back. She essentially was stuck in Plattsburgh, New York, staying in a motel. A local church got in contact with her and then Googled us, found us, and then drove, you know, drove her down to Brattleboro. So it's all kinds of different ways that this happens. The difference between a legitimate asylum claim and a, a person who is undocumented is paper. Um, it's not merit. It's not deservingness. Everybody deserves to cross a border and find a safe place to live. And I think one of the things I, I, I find myself constantly repeating is that an asylum seeker is not the good immigrant and the undocumented person isn't the bad immigrant. Most folks, when they get to us, they're undocumented. They haven't filed an asylum claim yet, right? Being documented is not a binary status where you're, you're good or you're not good. Um, you know, it, it, it really depends on how much evidence you have of your persecution. And it depends on the politics of the United States and which persecution we choose to recognize and which we don't. And that's all for political reason based on, you know, I mean, we, we recognize, um, you know, asylum seekers from Ukraine right now, because that's somebody else's aggression. So that sort of benefits our politics to say that Haiti, Honduras, those are our wars too. Yeah. Um, and so it, we're, we're sort of less likely to grant that status. So I do think it's not, you know, not as simple as the public narrative tends to make out. But we don't, that said, we do have a very supportive community. You know, our, our struggle, I think, is to have our communities recognize the thoroughgoing, deep structural nature of the repression that folks are suffering and have suffered. I think in, in Vermont and probably elsewhere in the country, we really want to tweak the immigration system to make it slightly better. You know, we say, well, the immigration system's broken, we need to fix it. Or the asylum system's not working, we need to fix it. As if it ever worked for any purpose other than to create a reserve army of undocumented labor that we could pay low wages and benefit our economy. So, you know, that's, I think, our, our pushback is not that kind of direct opposition. Our struggle is, is to be radical, you know? And I think that what I see in this work is, is folks forming personal relationships with asylum seekers and over the course of those personal relationships, they learn things about the immigration system and about U.S. policy and about, you know, hemispheric relations that change, you know, change their outlook of sort of how how thoroughgoing the repression is, really. 
That was my interview with Kate Probler-Quam from the Community Asylum Seekers Project. You're listening to the Good Work segment on WHMP. We'll be right back. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. WIC helps families learn to shop for nutritious foods and offers resources like online nutrition education and an app to make shopping easier. Visit us online at mass.gov slash WIC to find out if you qualify. The Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Okay, so... I talked with Kate Palberquam. She's the executive director of the Community Asylum Seekers Project. Does great work. This is my interview with her. What I would say, Republicans and Democrats are political parties. That's a political system. They both work for the same economic system. And the economic system that we have necessitates undocumented labor, necessitates repression. You know, I, I used to, I spent several years teaching college classes in Latin American history. Um, and one of the things we used to do was to talk about what the economic driver is of this country. What's, what's their economy based on? And we would identify, okay, well, it's coffee, it's gold, it's sugar. And then say, okay, what political system does that necessitate? What do you need to grow sugar? Oh, you need hundreds of people who work, you know, really hard for five years and drop dead. Well, what kind of political system do you need to ensure that that's the case, you know? Um, and I think in this country, we often overlook the ways in which our political system is tied to our economic system and serves it, right? So yeah, for sure, in terms of the transition from Trump to Biden, I think hopes were very high across the board. Biden said the right things. He said them in complete sentences. Um, you know, he, he respected the identities of the right people and that's good, um, you know, that's progress, but the policy hasn't been dissimilar. Um, Biden, has for the, the most of his administration refused to rescind this thing called Title 42, which is a, a piece of legislation essentially that denies the right to seek asylum at the Southern border. You know, the right to asylum is enshrined in international law. People have the right to go somewhere and ask for help from another government when their own government is unwilling or unable to protect them. And Title 42 was this measure that was put in place under the auspices of COVID, you know, saying that, well, people can't come here and seek asylum at the, at the port of entry, that's not safe. Um, and that's still in place, despite the fact that my kids don't have to wear masks in school. I can ride on a plane without wearing a mask, you know, um, we can do whatever we want, but folks can't cross the border, right? So, you know, Biden has, has made some moves in response to enormous public pressure um, to try to overturn Title 42 has not been successful. You know, you had Vice President Kamala Harris going to Central America and saying, don't come here, just don't come here, as if folks are just waiting for advice to make a personal choice to save their kids or not save their kids. So, you know, I, I think it, we, we are serving the same kind of economic system as we did under Trump. I think that Biden's foreign policy is not dissimilar, and that's the root of migration, right, is the militarization of Central America in particular militarization of police, decades and decades of political repression um, and economic exploitation. So, you know, the structural factors are are the same, unfortunately. Yeah, he's, he's nicer and he, he talks better. I asked Kate Paulberg-Quam, the executive director of the Community Asylum Seekers Project in Southern Vermont, about the political education that goes into her work. 
for the, the volunteers that we work with up here. We have a lot of wonderful folks that were involved in Central American Solidarity in the 80s and then sort of didn't weren't able to or, or kept apprised of what was happening in the 90s, right? So then you have this disconnect between knowing what was happening in the 80s is we had these honorable people and priests and nuns who were fighting for the poor. And then in the 2000s, you have a migrant caravan and there isn't a sense of how those things are connected, right? There isn't a sense of, for example, you know, the wave of free trade agreements, including CAFTA in 2005, NAFTA in 1994, that devastated the economies to the benefit of the United States and our economy. You know, there isn't a sense that, for example, when the Central American Civil Wars, quote, ended, unquote, and instituted these peace agreements, which looked great on paper, at the exact same time, those countries were signing free trade agreements, right, with the United States. They were getting loans from the IMF and the World Bank, and those loans and those free trade agreements dictated, you will not spend money on social spending. You will not reintegrate ex-fighters and ex-combatants into the economy. You will not fund soup kitchens. You will not do this. You will not do this. You will pay your debt. And that's it, right? So the notion that you had these wars that we know plenty about in the 80s, and then we say, oh, well, they declared peace. Peace needs money, right? Peace has to be funded. Peace has to be believed in, and it has to be thoroughgoing. And so you know, what you have is an entire population of young people men and women who are trained to fight and there is nothing else for them to do, right? And then at the same time, you have gangs like the MS-13 that are deported from the United States, right? Sent from the US to El Salvador and other Central American countries. And that's, that's who's gonna take care of you. That's who's gonna protect you. And that's, that's where you can you know, earn a living, right? So of course the United States is involved in, in why governments can't protect folks in Central America. Um, you know, I, I mean, Honduras, the democratically elected president was overthrown as recently as 2009 under the Obama administration, supported by the secretary of state at the time. So it's not ancient history, right? It was Hillary Clinton, I believe. It was. It was indeed. Yeah. It's not charity work we're doing. It's reparations. You're listening to the Good Work segment on Afternoon Buzz on WHMP. My name is Jeff Napolitano, and I was speaking with Kate Paulberg-Quam from the Community Asylum Seekers Project in Brattleboro, Vermont. I'm wondering um, if you're seeing your work ramping up more lately? I'm wondering what sort of the drivers of it are like. I think in terms of our day-to-day work, we're not necessarily seeing a ramp up because we're so small that we could never hope to meet the need. So really what we're seeing is a ramp up in our own capacity. You know, that said, now that we, you know, we've been around for about six years, we definitely get more calls from people at the border. We don't know how they found out about us, but they, you know, they get our number and they, they call and ask for support. Can I come to Vermont? And then we try to make that happen. So yeah, that's, that's a ramp up in a way. And also, you know, as the, as the population of asylum seekers in Southern Vermont grows, there's more of an, a social infrastructure for other folks to come. Um, and so we do, we do see some of that, you know, what's amazing about asylum seekers is that when they have met somebody on their journey, all they want to do is support them. We, we serve a, a mom and two daughters who live in a one bedroom apartment because with the COVID housing crisis, that's all we could find for them. And as soon as they got here, they said, okay, well, I know this other family, you know, I know this other family that was stuck with me in this detention center. Can you support them? They can stay with me. I know there's no housing. They can stay with me. You know, I knew this, I knew this woman who I crossed the Rio Grande with. I knew this woman, I held her baby when I was swimming the river. Can you please support her too? You know, there's no scarcity mentality among folks when it comes to offering shelter. How can people get involved? Do they want to help you in the work that you're doing? Can people in Western Mass help you in the work that you're doing? Yeah, we do have a lot of folks in Western Mass who help us 
Yeah, I mean, people can can definitely sign up to volunteer, especially if they are geographically adjacent to Southern Vermont. They can go on our website to do that. We, many kinds of in-kind donations we're always looking for. So if folks are attorneys and want to talk to us about taking a case, we would love to get a call like that. Same thing with therapists, especially folks who speak multiple languages, folks who have any experience in sort of trauma-informed care are always welcome. Um, and we definitely take money. That's always helpful, too. And that was my interview with Kate Prowler-Quam from the Community Asylum Seekers Project. You're listening to the Good Work segment on WHMP. We'll be right back. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Hey everyone, Gordon Oliver here. I am privileged, along with my co-pilot Tina Marie, to gather and share a community of people, organizations, and experts who are making a difference in improving and positively impacting the financial lives of others. Financial peace of mind is a marathon, not a sprint, so we're cutting through the clutter to help you attain or continue to attain financial freedom. Reverse mortgages and home equity conversion mortgages may be in the future of you or someone you know. So listen in as Millie Potter of Homebridge Mortgage takes on these subjects Saturday at 9.30 a.m. right here on WHMP. Learn Spanish, learn French, or German. Learn a language with the International Language Institute. Speaking the language with others who are learning is inspiring. ILI is a PDP provider for the state of Massachusetts and an accredited provider of continuing education units. Learn Spanish, French, German. Ten-week part-time classes start June 27th. Sign up online. One of the world's top language schools is right here, the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. True terror, as Kurt Vonnegut said, is waking up one morning to discover that your high school class is running the country. So, with Monty's help, help? We take on the terror of that thought every morning at 9 o'clock. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman. Weekdays at 9. And again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Food costs are rising, but an industry group says they are rising faster at the supermarket than at restaurants. Recent government data shows the cost of food away from home rose 7.4 percent for the 12 months ending in April. Food consumed at home gained nearly 12 percent for the 12 months that ended in May. Government safety regulators are warning parents not to use a popular infant-to-toddler rocker because at least 13 infants have died in one between 2009 and 2021. The products in question are the Fisher-Price infant-to-toddler rocker and newborn-to-toddler rocker. Cardio equipment maker Nautilus is recalling about 7,300 Nautilus treadmills. The company says the treadmills can start up on their own, posing a fall hazard to the user. The firm has received 21 reports of that happening. They say no injuries have been reported so far. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And welcome back. Uh, this is Jeff DiBolitano. I'm uh, in my The Good Work segment right now. And uh, you had previously, before the break, heard from Kate Palper-Quam, who's from the Community Asylum Seekers Project. Uh, I spoke with her yesterday at length about the work that she did. Um, a couple of things, uh, you know, the more inspiring, the most inspiring thing that I think she said to me was that really what our struggle is, is to be radical. Our struggle is to, to look at the people who are going through the asylum system with 
uh, humane eyes with, you know, uh, not thinking about what's legal and what's not legal because these are often arbitrary uh, guidelines, at least when it comes to immigration. Um, and um, she was talking about how hopefully with more Ukrainian and, and Afghan asylum seekers uh, that we will change our system to to um, to be more forgiving uh, and accepting of, you know, uh, Haitian and Honduran and, and other asylum seekers. And I'm, I'm not sure if we're if the United States is on that path, but uh, that was something that uh, she remarked. Um, and um, the other thing that she talked about is how they help get people from the border, um, that the Mexican border, to Vermont. They, you know, sometimes they work with ICE. Um, sometimes they work with just uh, organizations, nonprofits that are doing the work on the border uh, and how there's this... Um, Miles for Migrants program where you can actually donate your uh, frequent flyer miles to help get um, asylum seekers from the border to places like Vermont so Kate can help resettle them. Um, So that's the Community Asylum Seekers Project. That's uh, www.caspvt.org. They are based in Brattleboro. Um, And so, yeah, Uh, we have a couple minutes left. And so... um, I wanted to revisit uh, what we were ranting about before. Um, I, I had mentioned uh, when we were talking about the January 6th committee, and we sort of cut it a little bit short, but I want to go back to this, how um, now we have evidence in, in uh, the person who's being called into uh, the to testify in front of the January 6th committee is Jeannie Thomas, who is the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And so... Um, in addition to that, we also have footage from the committee that Representative Loudermilk, which is apparently a name of a person who is a representative, giving a tour to uh, insurrectionists the day before January 6th. Um, and so we're now in a situation where this is reaching the Supreme Court. This is reaching members of Congress. And it just keeps blowing up and blowing up. And I mean, at what point is somebody going to stop this or address this even try to hold somebody accountable um, other than having a, you know, a prime time uh, basically slideshow about all of this stuff, which is very compelling. But um, again, the person who's responsible for doing something about this is our attorney general. You're the the lawyer, Buzz. (laughs) How do you feel? It's very difficult to disagree with anything that Jeff just said. I mean, it, it, you know, it is being well done. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't have the luxury of sitting and watching it all the time, so yeah. um, <clears throat> I'm just I'm reading about it and watching snippets of it on the news, and so I'm not watching it live. Do you have confidence, Buzz, as a lawyer, that um, there's going to be indictments? There's going to be soon? major in- indictments of some high-level officials. I've, you know, um, I would love to say yes, but my confidence has been shaken in really the last couple of decades, but certainly the last, you know, during the Trump administration, the stuff, the lawless stuff that I saw going on, which was so transparent. All of us knew what was going on. Yeah. All of us knew it was lawless. Yep. All of us knew that we had a, somebody in the, in, in the White House who considered himself I mean, above the law and had lived his life as one I mean, who was if above I, the law. If I can go to Eastman for a second, he knew he was breaking the law, asked Trump for a preemptive pardon, didn't get one. And yet, if you don't charge him, I mean, people who are sitting on the fence and not following this closely, 
if you had your arguments, Jeff, mm -hmm. they would go, okay, maybe everything you're saying is true, but then how come the justice system never charged them? Right? There's a consequence right. to not charging people. Oh, there's, there's a, a massive, massive there's consequence. A, That's underplayed yeah. severely. But go yeah. ahead, Jeff. I, mean, gonna I, say. I would argue that there's a consequence for not prosecuting bankers in 2008 for mm -hmm. destroying the economy. And, you know, and, uh, what, what is the incentive to not do these things again, to not break the law, to not, you know, break the economy, to not break the U.S. government? There is no incentives to not do those things if nobody's ever held accountable. That, but... That reminds me of Obama's famous phrase about not looking backwards. Not, yeah, he's not looking backwards. Got to look forwards. When he had the bankers in the White House with them, says, hey, I'm standing in between you and the pitchforks. The people out there are really mad about how you rigged this system in favor of yourselves. And that kind of got a slap on the wrist and said, hey, we're going to pass this Dodd-Frank. And, and we ended up every, every economic uh, sort of lever was being pulled by Goldman Sachs. For the four years of the 45th president. Oh, okay, so Trump, yes. we got to take a break. Um, I'm going to be back here in two weeks, and we're going to celebrate, and we're going to be <laughs> joyous about all the indictments that will come down from the attorney general. And, um, and, and yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll plan a celebration for two weeks from now. And I'd like to sell you the Calvin Coolidge Bridge. <laughs> we're going to take a break. We're going to be right back. We have some very interesting stuff. There's a symposium. Um, the Lester Grinspoon Spoon, um, Reconsidered Symposium celebrating a pioneer of drug policy and uh, his legacy of social change. We're going to be talking to participants there. very soon. We'll be right back after these messages. Happy talk, keep talking, happy talk. Talk about things you'd like to do. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. The Afternoon Buzz is brought to you by Lundgren, family-run since 1964. Greenfield's largest automotive group is the place to buy your next Honda, Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, or Ram. Experience it in Greenfield. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Governor Charlie Baker filed a $56 million bill yesterday to fund a settlement in a class action lawsuit over the COVID-19 outbreak at the Holyoke Soldiers Home in the spring of 2020. The governor presented the bill to the legislature, which must ultimately vote on a supplemental budget item to approve the taxpayer-funded payouts to survivors of 84 veterans who died of the virus at the state-run home and 84 more who were sickened but survived. East Hampton City Council is giving the stamp of approval to the mayor's $48.5 million budget. The budget for the new fiscal year has increased 5.75% from the previous year. The spending plan was unanimously approved despite contentious talks between the mayor, city, and school officials. Town councilors in West Springfield are not happy with construction on Route 20 that began with no local input. The construction will reduce the number of lanes from four to two. Council President Edward Sullivan said that he first heard of the plan a couple of weeks ago and there should have been more communication before the construction started. The goal of the project is to cut down on the number of conflict points between vehicles and help reduce speed. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation is resurfacing 1.2 miles of Route 20 from East Mountain Road in Westfield to Dewey Street in West Springfield. Travelers can expect roadway stripping, rumble strips, and new paving markings to reflect the change during the last two weeks in June. Your forecast, scattered thunderstorms for the rest of the day today, otherwise cloudy, high of 86. Tomorrow, partly cloudy with a high of 68, warming up a little bit on Sunday with a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 70.
For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Stop what you're doing. The financial markets are in ruins. You're in debt up to your... And you hate your job. And you keep hoping for a better way. There is. My one-man show, Yield of Dreams. I'll demystify your money myths, transform your life, and entertain you all at the same time. Curious? Join me, Charlie Epstein, June 23rd, 24th, or the 25th at Polio Community College for a financially entertaining evening. Get tickets at yieldofdreams.live. Free for all students and start living a life of wonderment, joy, laughter, and play. A lot of mattress stores, all they talk about is price. Sale, 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 save, 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 blah, blah, blah. I get it. No one wants to pay a dollar more than you have to. But what do you really know about mattresses? Are you an expert? I'm not. And I have a furniture store. So I at least know a little. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. We mostly sell therapeutic mattresses at Talon Furniture. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you. Therapeutic the best mattress value I've ever found. And believe me, I've looked around. Therapeutic mattresses are made in Brockton. I've walked the floor and it was reassuring because there's no toxicity, no off-gassing. Therapeutic mattresses are clean and made by fellow Red Sox fans. Play the sale, sale, sale game if you want. That's not for me. A therapeutic mattress from Talon Furniture is your best bet and best deal. Today, tomorrow, or whenever you decide to buy a new mattress. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Grab your coat and get your hat. And welcome back on this Friday afternoon for our last segment. We're going to be talking about uh, a really interesting symposium that's going to be conducted at UMass next Friday the 24th. It's going to begin at 7.30. It's a symposium. It's really celebrating Lester Grinspoon. It's called Lester Grinspoon Reconsidered, celebrating a pioneer of drug policy and legacy of social change. Um, with us is Dr. Peter Grinspoon, one of his two um, sons who will be um, appearing as participants. Um, also with us is the head of the university archives at the University of Massachusetts, Aaron Rubenstein, and we're going to start with Alan St. Pierre, a former executive director of the National Organization to, for Mar Reform of Marijuana Laws. And Alan, could you tell us about what the symposium is going to be? Yes, thank you. Good day. It is a, as we've been calling it behind the scenes, a lust fest, a um, celebration of Lester Grinspoon's um, academic life and that of an activist. Um, he was extremely prescient in the five through seven books, as I recall, he wrote on issues having to do with marijuana, heroin, cocaine, amphetamines, um, hallucinogens, and, and all of it was very pragmatic, scientific-oriented, as we would call it today, sort of harm reduction um, leaning. And 
uh, coupled with all of this work in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, um, along with some best-selling books, Marijuana Reconsidered, Marijuana the Forbidden Medicine, um, these are in any drug policy reformer's library, is also his activist life. He was one of the leading figures in the country against the proliferation of nuclear war and specifically organized along with Dr. Carl Sagan, um, uh, protest out in Nevada and the MX missiles, many of us will recall from the early 1980s, which made big headlines. He was an extraordinary individual. And so this uh, conference is to uh, recognize not only all the things that he did in his life, and the, the um, uh, but the recognition of all the good has come from the kind of work that academics like him did that many of us are enjoying today. It really sounds exciting. Aaron Rubenstein, you're the head of uh, University Archives at, uh, at UMass, so you'll be welcoming people. You'll be, um, this is the kind of thing that UMass does to inform people um, about various things. So uh, tell us your role in this symposium. Sure, thank you. I'd be be happy to. So UMass um, has been looking to document social change in general um, for about 20 years now. And one of the things that we discovered is as we've been going down that path and, and trying to figure out how best to, in the archives, document the history of social change movements and of activists, we've, we've seen how um, activists are uh, understand the interrelated nature of, of movements. So it's not just the peace movement, economic justice, racial justice, but it's how these movements connect to each other. And it became clear early on that drug policy was a really key part of, of understanding a lot of the social issues that, that drive um, social change movements. So we've been working on building a, a archive, basically the place to go in the country to understand how um, the, the movement to end the prohibition on cannabis came about. Um, and Lester Grinspoon's papers are part of that archive, um, as well as the, um, the records of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, Normal, um, and other um, sort of local and national organizations. So this celebration is in part in recognition of obviously in memory of Lester's role in, in the movement, um, but also part of a, a way for us to talk about what we can learn from Lester and how we can use the archives to be able to, to teach those lessons going forward. Mm. Peter Grinspoon, you are a physician. You're a primary care physician. You're a cannabis specialist at Mass General. Um, and you instruct at Harvard Medical School. How did your dad get so involved in cannabis and uh, decriminalization movement? Well, it's an interesting story. He, um, you know, he was um, originally intending to write, he wanted to write a book about cannabis, or marijuana is more commonly what it was called back then. And he, you know, his attitude was sort of like, what are these foolish young people doing to themselves in the late 60s? We don't know much about it. You know, the information on cannabis had been very curated uh, to really um, emphasize the negative and minimize the positive. So it, cannabis seemed like a scary thing back then. Um, but my dad decided to do like a, you know, deep dive into the research. And when he did, he realized that 
while there are harms to cannabis back then, we knew about them. We know about pretty much the same harms now. Um, they had been really magnified and exaggerated, and the benefits had really been kind of shoved under the rug. And what he started to realize is that the harms of criminalizing young cannabis users far outweighed the harms of actually using cannabis. Um, so his book um, involved a huge personal transformation where I don't think he was really pro or anti, but he, upon doing the, the research, he realized that like everything we knew about it was built on a house of cards. And his book, Marijuana Reconsidered, is just a masterpiece. It came out in 1971. It was reviewed on the front page of the New York Times book review. And it, it's still like, it's such, it's so well written and so comprehensive. And um, so I think he was sort of like incidentally uh, became involved in cannabis and then had this very uh, popular um, and well-read book. And, and after that, he was sort of thrust into sort of a leadership role in the legalization movement because he was the one who really was telling the truth about it. The government wasn't telling the truth about it. You know, the Nixon administration uh, certainly wasn't telling the truth about it. So that started a 50-year involvement in this issue. I mean, it's it's interesting, as we'll talk about, he also did a ton with uh, anti-nuclear movement, as Alan mentioned, and a ton with psychedelics, and he's written books on all drug policy and on, on speed and uh, um, all kinds of different drugs. He wrote a really good book on schizophrenia, too, by the way. Um, but he really just became so prominent in the cannabis issue for the last 50 years. And it's just very exciting to get everybody together. So many people say, he was my mentor, he was my, you know, inspiration to pursue drug research, even though the government wasn't supporting it and society wasn't particularly supportive of it. So, well, obviously, just, Peter Grinspoon, he was an inspiration to you and your brother David, who is an astrobiologist. And both of you um, are part of the, and have been part of the decriminalization, legalization movement with respect to marijuana. And you, it's an integral part of your wellness work as a physician, right? So that a lot of what your dad did inspired you, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing, I'm only able to do what I'm doing because of my dad. Like it wouldn't be legal to prescribe it anywhere if it weren't for my dad. And it's just amazing how prescient he was about uh, the benefits of cannabis and the ways in which it can help people medically. Uh, you know, my life is so much easier as a primary care doctor because I have this relatively safe, non-toxic medication to use for pain, for sleep, uh, for anxiety. And I just, you know, it's amazing to me that more other doctors haven't caught on. But yes, my dad was like profoundly inspiring to me for what he did in cannabis, for what he did in psychedelics, and, and just for his like integrity, his intellectual integrity to, you know, at the time when he wrote his book, Marijuana Reconsidered, only 13% of people supported legalization. You know, drugs were pretty stigmatized. Cannabis in particular was very stigmatized. And regardless of what public opinion was or whatever kind of flack he got from Harvard, he would just say what he thought. And I just think that we need a lot more of that in today's world. Mm. Alan St. Pierre, you're an alum of, of UMass and you've been involved in the abolition uh, movement for a very long time, trying to uh, abolish those laws that uh, restrict the use of marijuana and criminalize it. Um, how did you first get involved in, in, in that mm. effort? <laughs> Good question. Uh, well, um, about two years after I left UMass, I was down in uh, Washington working for a law firm, and a friend of mine uh, asked if I could come over one night and literally stuff envelopes, because that's 
what we did back then to raise money and communicate, put their newsletter, their broadsheet into an envelope and off it went. And we used to ram tens of thousands of them into an envelope. And so it was, uh, that was my first orientation to it. I read about it in high times. I heard about it in, in college in terms of the organization and the rallies that it held, the ads that it would put out in certain publications. Uh, but uh, it was more substantively while I was at that law firm that they were handling the most substantive seminal legal case, which is normal versus DEA, which in short, in 1988, had the chief law administrative judge for the DEA rule against the administration flatly saying, quote, marijuana is the safest therapeutic substance known to human, unquote. And even though ultimately the DEA rejected the opinion and fought it, um, without that decision and the work that Lester and others had helped create, because that was a 20-year case from 1972 to 1992 or so. And so um, for me, it just showed substantively how absurd and obscene the government was that it was going to try to deny sick, dying, sense-threatened individuals who had a doctor's recommendation to use marijuana, that they were to be treated like criminals. And so someone like myself at the time, and to this day, who only uses marijuana recreationally, knowing that marijuana was not going to become decriminalized, marijuana was not going to become legalized, if it could not at least be prescribed or recommended under a doctor's uh, guidance. And so that is where so much of the energy was placed in the early 1990s. And it was that case, along with Lester's involvement, that really um, cemented the fact that, uh, as my mother used to vexingly say, I took um, my, um, <laughs> my, my, my um, teenage, you know, uh, adolescence and just simply formalized it into a professional career, but uh, it was great to see, as Peter indicated, that when that effort began in the 1990s, only about 15 to 20 percent of the public supported legalization, and certainly now we're into the low to mid-70s. So the meter has moved incredibly, and many of the people that will be speaking will be the doctors, lawyers and activists that actually got us from point A to point B. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about those doctors, lawyers, and activists that got us from point A to point B right after the break. We are talking to Alan St. Pierre, Aaron Rubenstein, and Dr. Peter Grinspoon. We're talking about the symposium celebrating Lester Grinspoon and his work right after these messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Now, wait a minute. You know my baby. She won't let me in. Lundgren Honda. Experience it. Now, it isn't just one thing. It is everything you expect when you're looking for your next car, your first car, or to repair your car. Award-winning customer service, no-hassle, negotiation-free pricing, and friendly, familiar faces you know and trust with your vehicle. Hi, it's Rob from Lundgren Honda. Summer is heating up, and we want you to be ready for those summer road trips. So we are offering a summer road trip inspection. One of our trained technicians will perform a thorough multi-point inspection of your vehicle, along with an air condition and performance test, and 
and front end alignment check. This will ensure that your vehicle is safe, your AC is working to its potential, and the alignment readings are within spec. All this for $49.95. So please call, stop by, or go online to LundgrenHonda.com and make an appointment today. Consumer Satisfaction Award winners two years running. Lundgren Honda proudly provides you with an award-winning experience. See the latest selection of new and certified pre-owned cars at 409 Federal Street and LundgrenHondaOfGreenfield.com. Lundgren Honda of Greenfield. Experience it. As a business owner, your employees have to look great. That's why, for over 30 years, businesses choose Pacific Printing for customized screen-printed and embroidered shirts, hats, and jackets. And now, with our wide-format printing department, we can create everything from banners, lawn signs, and signage for your custom vehicles. Visit us at Damon Road in Northampton or OceanOfPromotion.com. To the co-op, the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, I'm Mike Buckmaster, Senior Vice President, Commercial Lending at the Greenfield Cooperative Bank and Northampton Co-op Bank Division. We have the best local commercial lending team in the Pioneer Valley. We're an SBA preferred lender, and unlike other banks, each of our team members has individual lending authority for fast local decisions. Hi, I'm Barbara Campbell, Assistant Vice President of Commercial Lending. Whether you're looking for a business loan or a line of credit, we can get your plans off the ground. Come and see us for help. And I'm Jim Alexander, Vice President, Commercial Lending. You can reach any of our experienced commercial loan officers by phone or through bestlocalbank.com. Meet one of us at your business or any of our locations. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the Co-op. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Northampton is an expensive place to live. East Hampton is less expensive than Northampton. Holyoke is less expensive than East Hampton. Northampton is not responsible for making everybody that wants to live here able to live here. I mean, this is a true, real impediment for folks that are coming into Northampton looking to use a Section 8 voucher. This acts as another barrier to be getting into those units. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are back and we're looking at this uh, exciting symposium celebrating the work of Lester Grinspoon. And um, we are talking to Alan St. Pierre, um, the executive director of Normal in the past and somebody who's been an activist uh, fighting the prohibition against marijuana for decades, literally. Aaron Rubenstein, who's the head of the uh, university archives, and Dr. Peter Grinspoon. What I understand is that the way that this um, impressive panel uh, uh, and session moderators has been organized is with looking at the past, the present, and the future with regard to marijuana. So I guess the best place to start here is to ask Peter Grinspoon, um, why, Carl Hart is the keynote speaker um, uh, on the registration um, site that I'm looking at. Uh, why Carl Hart? Uh, Carl Hart is um, a phenomenal writer and a phenomenal um, speaker. He, we're so excited to have him. Um, I mean, the whole conference is going to be like a who's who in the worlds of psychedelics and cannabis. It's not just cannabis, but 
Carl Hart is the head of, I believe, um, psychology at Columbia University, the Department of Psychology, and he is a drug researcher who has written several books. His most recent one was uh, Drug Use for Grownups, about the links between racial justice and sort of our government's attempts to taint um, and stigmatize drugs. Uh, again, this is like a fascinating story, his personal story and his research is fascinating. And he's just really electrifying in the way he can bring out these connections, just related to what Aaron said a little earlier in the show about how these different social justice movements are linked together. They're like intersectional, which is a word that my daughter would use who just graduated from Wesleyan. Um, but they really are linked together. and. Um, Carl Hart's gonna gonna first of all, what's interesting about his uh, evolution from like a dutiful drug researcher proving that all drugs were bad to someone who actually uh, completely flipped on this and, and and thinks that drugs should just be legal and accessible to people who are responsible about them. But also, um, he in in his books makes the most fascinating connections between the fight for racial justice and uh, the the criminalization of of drugs. So, he is our keynote speaker because he's the one who can bring it all together. Though that does not to say anything about the other panelists who are also equally spectacular. Aaron Rubenstein, you are an archivist. What do you see here in terms of this, especially with regard to the past, the present, and the future of marijuana in treatments of disorders and even as a recreational activity? Well, the thing that is most striking to me is, I mean, beyond just the value and importance of understanding the history of how we got to where we are now in terms of uh, legalization of cannabis and, and hopefully following soon other, other uh, psychedelic drugs, um, but also that you know, there is a, a pretty broad impact of understanding that history beyond just drug policy to, you know, as Peter was saying, understanding racial justice in particular, but also just how movements come about, how um, drug policy movements and how any movement can develop out of, um, uh, you know, a, a bunch of people who want to change something that they feel is, is problematic in our society. So by being able to preserve that history and make it available to as wide a range of people as possible um, is, is really our goal. Uh, that is a lofty goal, and it makes perfect sense. So, Alan St. Pierre, um, can you tell people who are interested, and I hope a lot of people are, in um, registering for the symposium? It's a one-day symposium, Friday, uh, June 24th. Could you tell people about how to find out more about it? Well, they can certainly just type in Lester Grinspoon, University of Massachusetts, and it's going to come right up in all the search engines. It's just been extremely well tagged. It's free. It's an all-day event. Um, there's going to be great little interludes all throughout the day with people video and memoriams to Lester, and there's great reception afterwards. So it's a wonderful event that uh, uh, looks at 50 years of work on moving the public opinion and to respect science and the guidelines it gives us to come up with pragmatic um, public policy uh, regarding drugs going forward in a way that many of us who are, say, over 50 years old uh, could not have predicted some years ago that has finally come to be through so much hard work from the people that will be represented at the conference. 
believe me, I never foresaw when I was in college in 67, 68, 69, hanging out with any war people and smoking my share. Um, I never foresaw the decriminalization of it, although I was within that 13% that you were saying is in favor of it. That's that's for Doug on So I don't want to trivialize it because I love what Aaron said, to put this in perspective, social change happens. Um, there's so many misguided public policies that drive our country and perhaps every country until we find out that they were misguided. And this is, there's no greater example than the war on drugs. Um, so, but I, not to trivialize it, but what munchies are you going to serve at that reception? <laughs> well, take, take oh, I don't know, legal, but I'm sure they're going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt about it. I think it's a, there's a big after party, and I think there's going to be pizza at the after party. Um, I'm sure there'd be all kinds of edibles at this event. And, and when I was reading about the registration situation, when you said it starts at 7.30 on Friday morning, it's a meet and greet, and it's an all-day affair, right? People go from one mm-hmm. panel to the other, correct? Yep. Exactly, and then they end up at Carl Hart's keynote, and then the, the reception afterwards. It really sounds wonderful. I think all of us, it's a nod to your dad, Peter, Lester Grinspoon, your work is really important and, and changed so much of this country. And um, we are so grateful. And I'm grateful for all three of you and all the panelists for putting this on. The symposium is Lester Grinspoon, Reconsidered, Celebrating a Pioneer of Drug Policy and a Legacy of Social Change. It's next Friday on June 24th. Do UMass Lester Grinspoon in your browser. You'll find out about it. Register. This should be well attended. Meanwhile... I want to thank you, gentlemen, for being with us. I want to thank all of you for being with us. I hope you have a great weekend and join us again on Monday for the Afternoon Buzz. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. It was well done, gentlemen. Using WIC is easier than ever. Now you can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. WIC helps families learn to shop for nutritious foods and offers resources like online nutrition education and an app to make shopping easier. Visit us online at mass.gov WIC to find out if you qualify. This message is brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. I guess I called AA because alcohol didn't work anymore. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 5 o'clock.